Thank you. Uh, I remember when I found out you wrote poetry, I was like, really? And then I read one and I was like, wow, he really does write poetry. Uh, for those of you who have yet to meet Glenn and Lisa, do so. They are wonderful people. They're some of my favorite people. Uh, they say this church is full of saints and we're all saints, but they're especially saintly. Uh, so go ahead and meet them. Hey, we got a lot to cover today. Okay, are you ready? You ready? How many of you guys got coffee? You're going to need it? You, trust me. I've read this a few times. You're going to need it? Okay. Uh, there's this thing. I, hold on. <clears throat> okay, there's this thing. And you might even hear it for a couple minutes today. Uh, when, when children are, are growing up, they get this thing called separation anxiety. How many of you have heard of it? Yes. Okay. My son Caleb has it. And he has all of it. Okay, so any time that Carrie leaves the room, literally, to go to the bathroom or to walk into the kitchen to get a cup for Caleb, who is five feet away, uh, he'll freak out and instantly say, I miss mama. Where'd mama go? And I'm, I'm, I'm literally going, dude, right there. Uh, and so he gets this thing where when she leaves... He freaks out, and then he, she doesn't know what to do. She begin, he begins to panic, and we all begin to sigh, going, what is your deal? Come on, you got to do this. Uh, but here, it, it stems from this. It stems from this idea that he doesn't believe when Carrie leaves the room that she's ever going to come back. And so he constructs this whole reality of life without Carrie, and he misses Mama. Dad, he doesn't care about he misses mama. So when you're going through your Bible and you come to this passage in Exodus chapter 32, uh, you, you see this, uh, that, that they're, they've just gotten the, the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. And uh, Scott's son was here last week. He went through the last five and I fact-checked a lot of his sermons. He doesn't beat me at golf, just so you know. He beat me once, and it was my first back, my first round of golf back after I had shoulder surgery. He beat me by one. So uh, that, that's it. That doesn't count. So we're going to have some words with Scott Sund a little later. I'll take care of it. You don't need to. But anyway, uh, Exodus 32 comes, and the people of Israel are having a little bit of a hard time. If you know the story, Moses was gone. Moses went back up to the top of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 24, and now he's been there ever since. Some like to say he's been gone for about 40 days. They hadn't heard from Moses. They hadn't heard from God. They've seen thunder and lightning, and they don't know if Moses is ever coming back. They might be dead. And so they have a little bit of separation anxiety like for real, they think that this is, this is the new reality and they start constructing like, what do we do now? We can't see God. We can't hear God. The guy who we appointed as our go-between is nowhere to be found. He might be dead. And so they start wondering what they're going to do. And then they go to Aaron, Moses's right-hand man or brother, however you want to say it. And they say, Aaron, he acted as the priests. And he goes, Aaron, build us an, a, a likeness to God so we have something to worship. In other words, build us an idol. Okay, and Aaron goes along with it, and he does it. And you can hardly blame him for this. It's him versus about 500,000 people. Build us 
an idol. I don't blame him. A lot of times we look at people in, in, the, in, the, in the Bible and go, oh, he shouldn't have done that. But I, I think I do the same thing. You do the same thing. We cave to popular opinion all the time. Uh, and so this is exactly what he did. And he did it. He built this idol. Uh, but they, they didn't know what was going on up there. And so he goes along with it. He does exactly what you and I would do. They're panicking. He panics. He takes matters into his own hands. We've all done it. They didn't like, and this is the bottom line, that the people of Israel did not like worshiping God on God's terms. And so they decided to write their own playbook on what it meant to worship God. And so now they're worshiping God on their terms. So they made God in their own timeline. They made God look like what they want God to look like. They made God in their own image instead of what God wanted to be and how God wanted to be worshiped. So to calm them, Aaron goes along with it, and he checks all of their boxes. And if you look at the text, it's Aaron's intentions are good. He's not, he's not trying. He's trying to calm them down, soothe them a little bit. His intentions are good. Look at Exodus 32, verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced tomorrow... There will be a festival to the Lord. Now the word Lord there is not a little L Lord or a little G God. He's doing this like, look, you need help worshiping God to know that he's still there. So we're going to do this. Tomorrow, the strict translation says, we're going to worship Yahweh this way. His intentions were good. Can you see this? He was trying to do something. It's important that we see this because they didn't think the golden calf that they constructed was God. Never says that there is God. For them, it was a crutch to help them worship God in God's, quote-unquote, absence. They don't think the calf brought them out of Egypt. Rather, they worship the calf in order to thank God. But they were still worshiping another God. Does this make sense? They were still not following the first and second command that they were just given like 10 chapters earlier. They forgot that already. They weren't worshiping another God. They were in Exodus 24. Here's what it says. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or above or on earth or beneath in the waters below. You shall not bow down and worship them. And then the next day, hey, we're going to do this as a festival to God. They knew that this calf didn't hold a candle to anything that God had done for them. It, 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 so the next day in verse 6 of, of chapter 32, the next day the people rose up early, sacrificed burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. This is all things that how they were instructed to worship Yahweh. So they're worshiping, they're doing the form and function of worshiping Yahweh. They're coming to church like y'all did today. Uh, they're singing songs, everything, but their attention is directed in the wrong place. It's on their terms, how they wanted to worship. And so they presented their fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down and they ate and drank and they got up to indulge in revelry. The word for revelry is the Hebrew word sa'ak. I know you want to say it. Go ahead. Sa'ak. It means to play. It's an innuendo. Do you get it? They weren't playing board games. Perhaps they were. 
it, it had, it, it's, a, it's a term, it's, a, it's what they did for idol worship. It was sexual immorality. They were playing in this way. It's an innuendo of things. This is what they were doing. Needless to say, the festival that ended up breaking out at the foot of Sinai was something that God would not have had in mind. Instead, the people of Israel were worshiping their own version of God who allowed for things like this in their minds. They had a right motive but a wrong way of reading about. We follow in here. Started out good. We want to worship God. We want to be able to see God. Our motives are right. But what our motives are leading them to were wrong. And so they built their own version of God. It created a substitute version of God that felt good in the moment. It met their separation anxiety. But it never met their needs. We never do that, do we? No. We don't construct God on our own terms. We don't think God agrees with us on our own beliefs and practices. No, no, we don't. That, that has never happened since, right? No. And if you're, if you're agreeing with me that it hasn't happened since, don't worry. We're, we're, you're in good company. There's a pattern that happens here. They say that history may not repeat itself, but instead history might resemble things that have happened before. This idea of elevating our own ideas, our own conveniences, our own thoughts, our own theological viewpoints, our own political points, our own social points, our own ethical points, to the point of idolatry happens every single day. It happens in a lot of churches. And what's happening is it's moving the churches slowly and slowly and slowly away from the true God and gospel and we don't even recognize it's happening. It's happening everywhere. It's not 15 degrees of in the bad direction. It's 1% off over time and it leads you in a completely different direction. It's still happening. It happened in Scripture. As Scripture keeps going, it keeps happening. In fact, in Judges, in Judges 17.6, it pretty much labels it. It says in 17.6, in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. And it's that last line that got everyone in trouble. Everyone did as they saw fit. They lost the anchor. Because now the anchor becomes your emotions and your feelings and what you want instead of what God might want. You do what you see fit. You don't have an authority in life except for your emotions and your, your own viewpoints, and now you're off base. Judges doesn't end well. In fact, there's this cycle, and it just keeps repeating and repeating of destruction after destruction, and then coming back. It's not a happy cycle to be in. Why are they in the cycle? Because they did everything as they saw fit. They created and worshiped a God and a lifestyle as they saw fit. Not necessarily the true God. They became the gods. They became at the center. What they thought was good was good. And so they start bringing in other religions into the temple. And pretty soon, next to the temple of Yahweh is an Asherah pole where they're worshiping an idol right next to Yahweh. God doesn't like this. Read Ezekiel. This is not a good thing. They started doing this and it kept going. People were starting to worship their priorities before Jesus or God. Started worshiping their politics, other people, power, and positions. Whatever we elevate something, even with the best of motives, to the place of God-like priority in our lives, we begin to stray further and further away from God. We might think we're worshiping God. We might think we're doing something virtuous, but you're falling for an imposter. 
Satan is really good at this, by the way. He's really good at making something look and feel godly. He's really good at making something look and feel like it's Jesus. And it tracks people and you go for it and you're like, yes, I believe in this person, this organization, this viewpoint, whatever it is, this book. And it leads you astray because it's not the real thing. In high school, we used to take trips down to Mexico. Grew up in Southern California, so it wasn't a big deal to drive down there. And we would head down to Mexico. And then we'd spend the day in Ensenada where we collected enough fireworks to last us the weekend and, and a couple of fingers. And uh, we had bottle rocket Roy's going from bus to bus. That's another story. Uh, but one of the things that we came across was Oakley sunglasses. And we thought, oh my goodness, these Oakleys are like 20 bucks here. They're like, like 120 up at home. Let's get some. And then they looked like Oakleys. They looked, they felt like Oakleys. They were great. And then you put them on and you're, good, you're 20 minutes outside Ensenada and snap, they break. But they're supposed to be Oakleys. And then you look closely. It doesn't say Oakley on the front. It says Oli. They left out the K. Okay. We fell for an imposter. Oakley glasses don't break in 15 minutes unless you give them to my son. I know from experience. They shouldn't break just by putting them on your head. I have a wide head and I've survived Oakley glasses. But you fell for an imposter. You thought it was a good deal. You thought it was the right thing. You were going and all of a sudden, boom, broken. Now you're out 20 bucks and you don't have sunglasses and you're squinting. This is what happens. Satan makes a good pair of knockoff whatever to make us feel good like we got a deal and then all of a sudden we're 10 minutes down the line in our life and we're completely off base and we look nothing like Jesus would have us look. This is what's going on in Exodus 32. Satan is good at, at leading people astray with a very good imposter. They fell for, they fell for a cheap substitute this is what's going on in, in, uh, in, with Palm Sunday as well. Like today is Palm Sunday, if you didn't know. Today's the day where we commensurate that Jesus rode in to Jerusalem and they covered the streets with palms. The same type of mistake that they made in Exodus 32 is the same mistake they make here in John 12. Every gospel writer talks about it has a different spin on it. Today we're going to look at John's. In John chapter 12, it says this, the next day, the great crowd had come for the, for, come, had come. Wow, I can read. The great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and they went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who is the king of Israel. And at first glance, you're looking at this and going, Finally, the people of Israel get it. Jesus is the guy. He's the king. He's the one you've been wanting. Finally, we get it. But not really. They're close, but they're missing the K in the middle of Oakley. They're falling for a pair of Oleys, and it's not it. And so here's what's going on in this passage. They're there for a fest. We're going to get pretty historical, so buckle up, okay? This is where it gets boring, so let's all take a sip. Thank you. During this time, John mentions a festival. It's the festival of Sukkot. Festival of Sukkot was an eight-day festival where they all went out literally in their front yards and they would build a tent or a, a booth is what they called it. 
And they would camp out in the booth in order to remember how God took care of them for 40 years back in Exodus. And they would live in their booth for eight days. This was a wonderful, it was, it was a festival. Everyone would, would come in. They would remember what Egypt, uh, what happened when they left Egypt. But this festival became highly political. Do we know what that's like? Everything becomes political. Okay, this one became highly political too. And now in between, here's why, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament was a period about 432 years, give or take one or two, uh, years of what we call silence. It's not that God wasn't speaking, it's just that nothing was written down at that time. God was still working. God is always working, even when we can't see him. But during this time, uh, no book of the Bible was written. But a lot of things happened, one of which that's relevant to right now was called the Maccabean Revolt. How many of you ever read the book of Maccabees? Yes. Okay, it's in the Apocrypha. It is an incredibly fascinating and very violent book. Okay, Maccabees stemmed from this. In 330 BC, a man named Alexander the Great took over all of the known world. Not only did he conquer the world, he had this practice called Hellenization. Hellenization, and I'm going to try and speak fast so we can get it all in. Hellenization was when the Greek, when Greek took over, instead of just letting people go about, Alexander wanted to make the entire world just like him. He tried to make them Greek. So he comes into a town and he, <coughs> excuse me, he builds his own synagogues, he builds his own temples, he builds everything in order to make people Greek. And so he did this for the Jews when he took over the Israel region. <coughs> excuse me. For the Jews, however, this was highly problematic. The Jewish way of life and the Greek way of life couldn't be more opposite. During this time, there were two groups of Jews. There were those who said, you know what? It's not that big of a deal. So what? We're Greek. Let's go along with it. And then there were those that were like, no, this is huge. We're not going to go along with it. We're going to fight against it. And so you had the two groups of how we live with this. The, the groups intensified over time. Then, after a while, a man came to power named Antiochus Epiphanes IV, and he took this Hellenization product to a whole new level. He told the people in Jerusalem that they are no longer allowed to worship God as they worship God. The Jews couldn't sacrifice at the temple, and he outlawed the Torah. This would make the antagonistic Jews a little bit more antagonistic. Not only this, he proclaimed himself that he was Zeus and commanded all the sacrifices be, be to him. And then, and this is where it crossed the line, he made the Jewish people sacrifice pigs on the altar. Now we think of that and go, what's the big deal? It's bacon. No, to a Jewish person, a pig is an animal that they're not even allowed to touch. And now you're telling me that you want me to sacrifice on the holy altar a pig to a false god named Zeus? That's too far for some of them. And so this is totally... Uh, it, it, ruining their culture. It went on for 10 years. More and more Jews began to compromise, but there was that remnant of antagonistic people towards the, Greece, for, towards the Greeks. And then a revolt started. A man named Matthias had five sons, and his oldest son was named Judah, and they called him the Maccabee. 
Maccabee means hammer. That is the best nickname you could ever have. It's not MC Hammer. It's just Hammer. Because if you're going to start a revolution, your last name better be Hammer, right? This is what's happening. So Judah and his brothers and his dad lead this revolt. It happened about 160 years before Jesus. And they win. They kick the Greeks out. They retake Jerusalem. They clean up the temple. They reinstate the sacrifice. And it's a pivotal moment in Jewish history. For the first time in 500 years or so, they were free to worship Yahweh the way that Yahweh demanded to be worshipped. It's a big deal for them. It was a great time. Part of this, uh, when the Maccabees were laying siege to Jerusalem uh, during the fall, during this time, was the festival of Sukkot. The festival of Sukkot took eight days. Now, they're not going to take eight days off in the middle of a siege in order to have a, a feast and a festival. So they decided, we're going to put this on pause and we'll celebrate this after we win. And so they postponed the feast and they go ahead. And by the winter time, they had won. The Greeks were gone. They've retaken the temple. And now the first thing that they were going to do is make up for lost time. And we were supposed to do this in the fall, but now we're going to do this in the winter. And so they celebrated at the temple. But before they celebrated at the temple, don't worry, this will all make sense. Before they separated at the temple, they had to light the candlestick, which was called the menorah. It's from the book of Numbers. It's also called the lampstand. But in order to light the lampstand, you needed oil. And they walk into the temple after they've won and they're looking through and through. They can't find the oil. There's just a little bit left. And there's no chance that they can make more because it takes eight days to make oil. And they're entering the first day of Sukkot. The reason why they needed eight days is the, the, the feast was eight days long. Oil took eight days to, meet, to make, and now they're in a bind. So they take the little bit of oil they have. They put it in the lampstand, and they light it, and then God keeps it lit for eight days, otherwise known as Hanukkah. Nationally, they moved the Feast of Sukkot to the wintertime to mark this dedication of the temple. They've called it Hanukkah. It's the idea that God delivered the temple back into their hands and God allowed enough oil so that they celebrated the Sukkot, which was celebrating God delivering them from Egypt. And now they're combining the two and saying, we let a revolt. God, sell, God led us from Egypt. He led us from the Greeks. And now we have Hanukkah, but not in March. Okay, here's the thing. Jesus rides in to Jerusalem sometime around now, around Passover. Now, there's some symbols that come out from this time of the Maccabees. And symbols carry a lot of weight. So when Jesus rides into town, what did they do? Remember the verse of John? What'd they grab? Palm branches. Palm branches represented victory. When you look back, archaeologists have looked back, the palm branch was on the back of the Maccabean coin. It represents revolt. It represents freedom from, up, from over foreign powers. On the back of the coin, you have a palm branch on one side, a picture of Judah Maccabee on the other, and it was, they were carried these coins until Rome came in. The palm branch was a sign of hope for the people of Israel, but the palm branch was a political sign of freedom and revolution. Okay? Now, what did they shout? 
Hosanna, Hosanna, which means God save us or deliver us. Revolution, save us. The last time we had palm branches, we were saved from the Greeks. We shouted Hosanna then. This time we have palm branches. We're shouting Hosanna. Who's in charge? Rome. They didn't celebrate Jesus coming in as a Messiah, Savior, as we know him. They celebrated him coming in thinking, ah, now we can get what we want. So imagine this. You're hearing about Jesus. He's like other, the other rabbis. There had been other people who claimed to be Messiah, but Jesus is different. John talks about how Jesus taught with an authority. He was different from the other teachers. The other teachers just taught. They just taught the book like they read the textbook last night. Jesus talked as if he wrote the book because he did. Uh, but he's he's different type of teacher. You hear he's coming to Jerusalem on Passover. Passover celebration was a time when God was where they celebrated and remembered still to this day how God delivered them from Egypt. It's hugely political. It's deeply religious what they were doing. They saw Jesus coming. They pick up the palm branches. They pick up the, they start shouting the same things. Now they want revolution. Revolution is what we want. Not because they wanted to get right with Jesus, because they will, but because they wanted Rome gone. They wanted a return to glory. The first thing in their mind that the Messiah is going to take care of is Rome. We also know that this time that Rome outlawed any kind of processionals. What was this? A processional. Rome also outlawed the palm branch. So now they're breaking laws. They're begging for a fight. Watch what Luke points out in Luke 19. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees went to the crowd and said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now before we get down on the Pharisees, they're in this because they know if Rome catches wind of what they're doing, they're all done for. So this is an act of like, hey, 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 tone it down a little bit. Uh, They weren't concerned about the parade that was going on. They didn't want to stir up Rome because the Jews were saying, lead us for, the, the Jews were saying, lead us to revolution and freedom. We want another hammer. So the teachers asked them to be quiet so they don't get slaughtered. And then Jesus says this in verse 40, I tell you, he replied, this is in Luke, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now this is a nod to what happened in the Psalms in Habakkuk. In Habakkuk, the prophet forecasts what will happen if people want to live by the sword, they're going to die by the sword. Jesus had said this earlier in Gethsemane. The imagery that's happening here with all of what's going on with Sukkot, Passover, Maccabees, it's it's unbelievable when you get deeper into it. Then as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. If our traditional view of Palm Sunday was correct and they were declaring Jesus as Messiah, why would Jesus weep? He wept because it wasn't a happy occasion of what they were doing and Jesus knew that. Yes, they were declaring him as Messiah. That is correct. But they were off. They wanted Messiah, but they wanted Messiah their way and on their terms. 
They wanted Messiah to agree with what they were agreeing with it. They wanted a Messiah who would never allow Rome to rule. They wanted a Messiah that held on to their agenda and what they believed. Jesus said this, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but right now it is hidden from your eyes. There's a political background. There's a religious background. The Maccabees, the symbol of the palm branches, the cry for Hosanna, God save us. Jesus weeps because they're missing it. In Exodus 12, the Passover happens. The lamb comes in. Jesus is weeping because they're missing it. They're missing the symbolism of what's happening. On the same day that Jesus would have come rolling into Jerusalem is the same day they would have began to prep the Passover meal for the next week. Okay? They were going to celebrate what happens in Exodus chapter 12. Jesus was coming into town as a lamb, not a conqueror. Across town that very same day, they would have been preparing the lamb for the Passover feast, symbolizing that when the angel of the Lord passed over the homes in Exodus 12. They didn't care about that anymore. They didn't care about God's way of deliverance. They wanted their way of deliverance. When you come to Jesus' time, there was two ways of thinking, their way or Jesus' way. So Jesus is weeping. And all throughout the New Testament, people are seeing Jesus as a sacrificial lamb. John the Baptist calls him a lamb. He takes away the sins of the world. Now here's Jesus. He comes as a lamb to be sacrificed. And now the people are throwing down palm branches and missing the point completely. Do you see why he might be weeping? Because the only people that will, because these same people that acknowledge him as Messiah today six days from now, are going to be shouting, crucify him. Jesus goes on and prophesies about this time. Uh, He says in verse 43, this is about Rome. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and your children with your walls. They will not leave a stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're missing it. You're declaring a revolution. I'm coming as a lamb, and you're going to get the very thing you ask for. You want war, you're going to get war. The Palm Sunday was a time when Israel said, yep, you're the Messiah, but we want our Messiah the way we want a Messiah. Jesus says, I've come as a ransom. I've come as a sacrifice. The Jews say, no, 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 no. We want a powerful king. We want power and might like the other kings of the world. Jesus came in washing feet and forgiving sins. And the Jewish people of the day said, no, we want power. We want authority. We don't want the freedom you're talking about, Jesus. We want freedom from Rome. That's what peace means. It means freedom from Rome. No more Rome and we have peace. No Rome, no peace. Jesus taught the real enemy isn't Rome. It's the sin inside of us. And the agent adversary, the devil, has been fighting for for years. This is the problem. And I said, no, we don't believe in that. Jesus taught that freedom and salvation and peace are not political things, but matters of the heart. 
doesn't matter who your king or queen is. It's if Christ is in your life or not. Jesus taught that you can't shape God into your own image, into your own way of thinking. Jewish people said, yeah, yeah, we, we don't care. We want it our way. You see what's going on? Now, this was something that they only struggled with back then. We never do this. We never say, Jesus, I'll accept you if you agree with my agenda. We'd never say that. It was them. That's what they thought. That's what they think. But no, this happens. The story of Exodus has kept happening. We make golden lambs and calves all the time. We still play the Maccabee game. We're not over it. Some things that we hold on to sure sound religious. They look good. Some of us look religious. We post the right things. We say the right things. We do the right things. But they have nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus, I'll accept you if is something that we go along with. Jesus, I'll, I'll go along with your way of living as long as you go with, along with my way of fill in the blank. I'm all for Jesus forgiving me and then affirming me of everything I think and say. That's awesome, and that's the Jesus I want to believe in. I'm all for Jesus giving me love and joy and peace, as long as it's my way. So my question is this. I wonder how many times Jesus looks at what we're doing and begins to weep. We want Jesus, but we want, like the people of Israel at the foot of Sinai, and later on the streets of Jerusalem, we want a Jesus that checks all of our boxes. We want our own versions of Jesus. And, and because of that, I do think Jesus weeps over us too. We want him to match our politics. We want him to match our spending habits. We want Jesus to affirm our sexuality. We want Jesus to affirm our dating life. We want Jesus to affirm our theology. We try and cram Jesus into our life. But that's not the way it's supposed to go. It's not our life and Jesus fits into it. Jesus isn't a vending machine where you walk up and put in your $1.50 in three different ways until it finally accepts it and hit the numbers and get what you want. That's not the way Jesus is. Jesus isn't like a buffet that we all used to go to a year ago. We pick and choose what we want. Jesus says, come to me and die. Pick up your cross. Lay down your agenda. Lay down your politics. Put your sexuality aside. Put your job on the line. Give me your money. Give me your relationships. Give me your plans. Not so that he can take them and be a cosmic killjoy and we'll never have fun again. No, no, no. He says, put, put me ahead of those things. You can't pursue Jesus on your terms because when you do, it's not Jesus you're pursuing. It's your own version of Jesus. It's a substitute. It's a palm branch. It's a golden calf. It's no wonder a few days after this happened, the people who very cheered Jesus in as a conquering warrior were standing at the foot of Pilate saying, we don't want this Jesus. Crucify him. Matthew tells the story this way. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? The chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd, ask for Barabbas. And then have Jesus executed. Pilate said again, 
Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with this Jesus who is called the Messiah? They all answered, crucify him. Now, did you notice Barabbas' first name? Jesus. What was Jesus' first name? Trick question. (laughs) Jesus. So Pilate comes to them. Pilate found no guilt with Jesus. Says, look, I can release one to you. Do you want this Jesus, who is a criminal on death row, probably won't, won't mess with your way of living or thinking, or do you want this Jesus, who's going to upend everything about you, but you will find life? Which one do you want? We want the Jesus that doesn't mess with our stuff. We want this Jesus because he's easier to live with. We want this Jesus because he's not going to ask me the hard questions about how I'm living my life. I'd rather live with a common criminal than this Jesus who's going to challenge me on everything, who's going to give me the peace that surpasses understanding. I don't want this Jesus because he's going to make me line up with the values that he teaches in the scriptures. I'd rather have the easy way. Names are the same, right? Jesus or Jesus, the Messiah or Barabbas. The golden calf way of worshiping God or God's way of worshiping God. You see, we all have a choice and we're faced with it daily. Will we choose Jesus or will we choose our own versions of Jesus that make us feel good? Will we, be, will we remain faithful even when we don't see our will coming? Or will we panic and worship another way because it allows us to feel better? Palm Sunday is, is a great Sunday because it signifies the coming celebration of Easter. This next week, I encourage you to read through the Gospels. See what happened in the Passion Week. It's a great week to recenter what comes back. And it starts with this question. What Jesus do you follow? Do you follow the true Jesus? Or do you follow your own version of Jesus? If you come to Jesus and you're not having to change much, I think you're coming to the wrong Jesus. If Jesus automatically agrees with every single one of your views, I don't think it's Jesus who's agreeing with you. Jesus comes to say, I'm, I'm going to mess some things up. That's what I'm here for. Why does he mess things up? Because we've been chasing the wrong things for so long. And in order to get us back to the way that was intended for us to live, he's got to mess with you a little bit. And it's a good thing. So what's Jesus are you pursuing this week? Where are you laying your palm branch down this week? It's the question every church is asking today. What are you doing with your palm branch? Are you putting it down at the foot of your Jesus? Or are you putting it down at the cross of Christ? And agreeing with this call that says, come, pick up your cross. Die to me. So that what? You'll have a miserable life. No. Come and die and find out that it's truly life that you're pursuing. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you 
that you give us this choice. Moses gave it to the people at the end of Deuteronomy. Choose you this day who you are going to serve. Choose life, choose death. And the difference between the two is sometimes indistinguishable. And so, Lord, as your spirit continues to work in this room, may you point out the ways in which we have chosen a substitute. We followed after different Jesus because it it agreed with the popular opinion of politics. It agreed with the popular opinion of social media. It agreed with our neighbors. And it looked good. But it wasn't you. We called it you, but it wasn't you. So Jesus, would you forgive us of that? you forgive us from worshiping on your terms the choices that we make in private that we say you're okay with but you're not would you forgive us from that would you forgive us from constructing a golden calf with the best of intentions but we went astray Give us from that. Because you are faithful and just to forgive us when we ask. So Jesus, may you show us yourself. And may we have the courage to not fall for the substitute, Jesus, but chase after the real one.